here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hey, everyone. This is Benjamin Day, and we are here on the Medicare for All podcast, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. And this episode, we are joined by the one, the only, Jillian Mason. Jillian, I think you are our very first guest on the Medicare for All podcast. Definitely our first guest host. Way back in the days, I don't know if you even remember anymore when we recorded this in a little studio in Somerville. (laughs) I I put it all out of my mind. It feels like a different world back then. We sat across tables from each other and like spoke in a... Changing vapors. I had no idea what was happening at the time. It was disgusting in retrospect, all this human (laughs) interaction. But now we're safely in our homes. uh, But you have left us from our little liberal cushion here in Massachusetts and you are in Texas now. I am. I am in Texas now in Corpus Christi, <laughs> Texas. Shout out to all my comrades here. Awesome. Yeah. So we are going to talk today about drug advertising. And, you know, in particular, uh, probably everyone has, has heard by now that the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, COVID vaccine finally received full approval from the FDA. This is the very first COVID vaccine to, you know, not have just emergency approval, but like full, full FDA approval with the Federal Drug Administration. And that actually means that they can now start advertising their vaccines, which they have been barred. It's illegal, has been illegal for them to do that up until now. So get ready for a wave of drug advertising for the vaccines. But we thought we would, this was like a good moment to start talking actually about the broader use of drug advertising that pharmaceutical companies do for all their other really shitty, terrible drugs, which are good for some people, but bad for a lot of other people. So get ready to be flooded, airways to be flooded, social media to be flooded with ads for they've named their vaccine. (laughs) I'm going to try and get this out of my mouth without tripping over it. Comirnaty. Comirnaty? I think it's Comirnaty. I think it's Illuminati <laughs> somewhere in the name. It sounds like Illuminati. Comirnaty is the name that mm. Pfizer, and they apparently hired an advertising agency over a year ago to come up with this name. So this name is really high quality advertising. And it combines the terms COVID-19, mRNA, community, and immunity. But I, I agree that the Illuminati was probably part of the ad agency and just snuck it in there. <laughs> Uh, and this, you know, Moderna's is going to be coming, is going to be approved pretty qu- uh, soon as well. They have decided to name theirs Spikevax, which I approve of more. <laughs> I mean, Spikevax is like a good name for like a Rottweiler or something like that. You exactly. Know? So, There's yeah. going to be a wave of dogs named Spike uh, following this, I'm sure. <laughs> but the other reason, actually, the real combination of this episode was that Jillian, you were just like sending me a text rant about a drug ad that you had seen. <laughs> And you just could not believe your eyes that it was actually like airing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really pissed me off. 2 a.m. text to Ben. <laughs> so I think what we're going to do, we're going to we're gonna play this ad, which is by Eli Lilly. It's not a vaccine ad. It's a generic ad for the Eli Lilly brand. And then we'll kind of go from there and we'll talk more about sort of the role of, of drug advertising in our healthcare system. 
All right, prepare yourself for uh, a truly infuriating advertisement. Deep breaths. Medicine works in a rich body just as well as a poor body. It's as effective in 90210 as it is in 86503. Medicine will not discriminate against the color of your skin. Medicine pays no attention. All right, I'm going to cut it off right there. <laughs> Jillian, uh, what led to this rage text? I just can't imagine. <laughs> well, like, okay, all right. So this ad is talking about something that's really important, right? So, like, we want to recognize that right off, right? So health equity, health disparities, huge deal, right? And they mentioned, like, really important health disparity, which is, you know, between 90210, right, and 86503, which may not be as famous uh, zip code because there's never been a teen drama about it. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, those who are old enough will immediately know 90210 of a certain age. (laughs) But, but yeah, so that's uh, 86503 is actually in Tunle, Arizona, on the Navajo Nation, right? Which is, of course, you know, we know that, you know, Native people and all sorts of people of color, right, are always, you know, getting the short end of the stick. So the way that Eli Lilly has decided to address this is by saying, we make medicine for everyone. Mm -hmm. Medicine works just as well in a rich person's body playing tennis as it does in a poor person's body playing basketball out on the res, Mm -hmm. right? And it's just like, no one argued that, you know, like <laughs> that's a strong, you know, true, true fact. No one said that your medicine didn't work in other places. The whole point is that your medicine is not accessible in different places. And the fact that you're spending this money on this woke washing ad campaign actually means that your drugs will become less accessible and you'll exacerbate that class divide between 90210 and eight six five zero three. Yeah, uh, true fact, medicines do work the same in all bodies, regardless of your race and ethnicity. But that does not mean that everyone has the same access to healthcare or that pharmaceutical companies give a shit about the inequities that they create. Of course, they try to jack up their prices as much as they possibly can, which is what leads to the inequities in the first place. Low-income communities literally can't afford these unless they happen to have an insurance plan that covers it, that you have to get through a good job, which is, you know, this is why the reservations have some of the, you know, worst public health outcomes in, in the country. So... And out of curiosity, I was like, why is Eli Lilly doing this ad? Because I have a whole series of equity ads. They they did one for the Olympics as well. They're all kind of in a similar vein. And I looked it up and they, they mostly these days have diabetes drugs. They also have some cancer drugs. But we, we know that diabetes extremely prevalent in communities of color, extremely prevalent in Native American communities, reservation communities especially. So I think they're just pandering is my read of this. <laughs> I mean, one interesting thing that I saw was that they put out a PR statement with the ad campaign and, you know, all these ads are about health equity or whatever. And basically what they said was that they thought it was time to start advertising now because during the pandemic, they're seeing people express preferences between big pharma brands, right? So all those like fights you had with your family members about whether Moderna or Pfizer was better, right? Mm -hmm. This is like the big pharma has seen this as an opportunity to exploit a moment when we're all dependent on pharmaceuticals in order to, you know, make this a brand choice moment. 
Right. It's the perfect confluence of like Black Lives Matter and the COVID pandemic and sort of high public opinion for prescription uh, drug companies. I also like how they've rebranded themselves a medicine company, (laughs) a pharmaceutical company. We're a medicine company. It sounds like your neighborhood medicine person. So (laughs) my neighborhood medicine guy is constantly, um, yeah. Uh Well, it's getting easier and easier for the neighborhood medicine guy to do his his business, (laughs) his or her business. But so this is a good uh, segue to the the bigger discussion of our pharmaceutical advertising in in our healthcare system. And I wanted to pull up a comment by Doug on YouTube here because he says exactly what we were just going to start talking about, which is that most people don't know this, but direct to consumer advertising, which is exactly what we were just showing you where a pharmaceutical company sends an advertisement directly to patients on TV or in print is illegal basically across the entire globe. It's just not allowed for probably what, as soon as you think about it for a moment, is obvious reasons, right? If you have a medical issue, you should go to your doctor and your doctor should tell you what medicine you should be taking, right? You should not be your own doctor essentially prescribing yourself uh, what you think it is based on something that you've, someone with a profit motive has sort of tried to push on you. And I went a little bit deeper because it turns out that drug ads, even in the United States, were extremely, extremely rare up until basically the 2000s. And the reason is that, you know, there were drug ads in print, like in magazines for a long time, but they were required by the FDA to list every single side effect and risk of taking the drug in their advertisement. And the naive rationale behind that was like, we're going to show, show the good, the upsides and the ba- downsides in the ad. And then it's truly an educational thing. It's not promotion. You know, it's not advertising. People are actually going to learn, you know, oh, this could be good for me. Oh, but there could be downsides too. And then they can make an educated choice, which is total bullshit. Like Sesame Street, but it's about boner pills. Yeah, exactly. It, it turns out that none of us are, are actually able to make good decisions about our health, um, including myself, probably primarily myself, but it, it makes it much worse when you have advertising. So So what happened? How did they end up getting around this requirement by the FDA? Well, starting in the 1980s, a few entrepreneurial pharmaceutical companies found a loophole, which is that you don't have to list the risks and side effects of drugs if you don't even mention what the drug treats, if you don't even talk about the condition that it's going to cover. So they started running these really bizarre, you know, sort of branding ads back then in the 80s. And I I feel like we still get those sometimes, right? Oh, always. On Facebook, I'm always getting ads for like drugs. They're like, do you need Azimabzinda? I don't know, maybe. It works on me, I don't know. Yeah, it's like, and I feel like this works better for like, Car ads, right? Where it's like, it's just like they're selling you a lifestyle, right? It's like, oh, you can, you know, hot chicks and the beach and off road and yeah, blah, blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You don't even need to say anything about the car that you're advertising. It's a little bit weirder with drugs when you're not mentioning what the drug treats, but that didn't stop them. They started doing limited advertising on television and radio without mentioning what their drugs were, were talking about. So this was, you know, 1980s, the, the decade I would remind you that brought us, wake, wake me up before you go-go, e- equal contribution to the, to the world. <laughs> and now that I've stuck that in all of your heads, it wasn't until 1997, which is so seems so recent, that the FDA started allowing pharmaceutical companies to list only like the major risks of drugs, not all the risks. But they had to mention where people can find a full list of the risks and side effects of the drug. And I, I had no idea that this is why this happens. 
But whenever you see a drug ad, you may notice that they're like, see our advertisement in, you know, Golfer's Digest or, <laughs> you know, these really obscure print uh, magazines. <laughs> and I never understood why these fucking things were in there. But this is why it's actually a legal requirement. They have to direct you to a full print advertisement listing side effects and uh, and risks of the drug. You know, the more you know, Ben, the more you know. Yeah, and that's where you make the the you know the educated decision once you've read your golfer's digest or your <laughs> country gentleman whatever you know. That's where I go for my medical advice. And- right. <laughs> I feel like you can you can always tell what the the pharmaceutical company executives read based on where they send you in these ads, right? It's like only rich people shit mostly. Mostly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Big yachts magazine. Exactly, and you know this. Uh, the fact that I hadn't actually realized that they are not listing all the risks and side effects. I thought they were listing all the risks and side effects. These are only the major risks and side effects, but they are so horrible and terrifying and comically bad. Even the limited stuff they have to talk about. I mean, I know we, I know you pulled up a couple of these, Jillian, like yeah, the after yeah. drug warnings. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to tell you about a drug called Abilify. I see this one all the time. Yeah. I see this ad all the time. <laughs> I don't know too. why I've been targeted. Uh, I don't know. I, I know that I'm targeted because I'm taking several other uh, drugs for depression, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Have you considered switching? <laughs> no. And, and I'll tell you why. Because if you're on Abilify, you should call your doctor if you have high fever, stiff muscle, muscles, and confusion to address a possible life-threatening condition. Or if you have uncontrollable muscle movements, as these could be permanent. Permanent, uncontrollable muscle. Okay, anyway. That sounds really bad. <laughs> high blood sugar has been reported with Abilify. In some cases, extreme high blood sugar can lead to coma or death. Other risks include decreases in white blood cells, which can be serious. Dizziness upon standing, seizures, trouble swallowing, and impaired judgment or motor skills. I, that one. That's all. <laughs> I just want to point out that I think that they like they list these in a random order in order to like, you know, kind of mask the totally. one, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So it's like, you know, dizziness upon standing, seizures and death. Right. <laughs> and you know that during all of this, there's like really pleasant music and like really friendly people doing interesting stuff to distract the eye. But I have to say my first takeaway after listening to you read that was, I think you should consider a career change, Jillian. You have... You have an excellent TV voice. <laughs> right? I know. I know. I know. If anyone's watching, I'm looking for representation. Right. She's ha- she could happily to read all the major risks associated and refer people to Golfer's Digest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good stuff. Good stuff. Oh, man. Ben. Yes. All this comes back to the money, right? Uh, well, that is kind of what the healthcare system is about in America, unfortunately. Sad. Hashtag sad. Are you going to make that hashtag trend? Uh, it's very 2016, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so, you know, Ben did some research. And what he tells me is that, you know, big pharma advertising, direct-to-consumer advertising. So that's not even counting the advertising that they do to your doctors, which is like crazy and insidious and send them on a cruise and give them a bunch of pens and mm-hmm. then they prescribe right. you their medicine, whatever. Um, but so this is the direct-to-consumer advertising has hit $6.58 billion in 2020, which is up from $3.9 billion in 2012. Just to 
give a little context there, it cost Moderna $2.5 billion in order to in order to make the what are they calling it? The spike fax vaccine. Spike fax. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a shit ton of money. And this doesn't even include social media or online advertising, um, which wasn't allowed before 2016 because of the complications with listing the side effects of drugs on social media. But the FDA has been allowing it. They found some way around it. And so now there's tons of big pharma on social media, including they got Kim Kardashian to shield for them. No. So yes. In 2015, the she FDA would never had to force her to take down a drug promotion post from Insta. So you mean she was acting irresponsibly? <laughs> okay. Now, if you've seen <laughs> Cooking with Paris on Netflix currently, I definitely recommend it. Kim Kardashian looks like really the responsible one. She teaches Paris how to use a dishwasher. I had great hopes for her, you know? Oh, they don't have people to do those things for them? <laughs> it's clear that Paris has a lot of people <laughs> to do a lot of things. <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean... Kim Kardashian you... literally has to tell her what a blender is. It's but anyway, my point is, is that I get why the company, why these drug companies are trying to do this social media advertising, because I actually do trust Kim Kardashian more than a big pharma company. But obviously sleazy, obviously insidious. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the reason that drug advertisement has now been even more recently, recently been moving on to social media. I mean, that's been kind of a new development. It's because it's actually hard to list even the major side effects of a drug in a social media setting. I mean, imagine that whole paragraph that you just read about Abilify. I mean, there was was possible life-threatening condition. There was uncontrollable muscle movements that could become permanent. There was high blood sugar that can lead to coma or death. And then there was a whole list of other things. Like, how do you do that in a Facebook advertisement, right? Or even a Facebook video, which everyone knows no one watches more than a few seconds of. Pay no attention to this Facebook uh, (laughs) listeners right now. Um, (laughs) But it's been almost like Facebook is not the appropriate forum for discussing possible drugs. In fact, none of them are. Uh, The doctor's (laughs) office is really the only appropriate forum for discussing the drugs you should be taking. And so, uh, but you can imagine, you know, they, they've been coming up with things like streaming the side effects in small text along the bottom. So they've, they've only just now kind of innovated these ways that the FDA has started to accept to like start advertising on uh, social media. And that is now like catching up with the TV advertisements, which we're already totally inundated with. I feel like I see almost only farm ads and car ads and like almost nothing else. So it's, it's totally wild out there. Yeah. I actually bought a newspaper rack to organize some of my magazines. And now Facebook thinks I own a convenience store and they keep on <laughs> snacks wholesale to sell at my convenience is, store. Is that how few people have magazines these days? Yeah, that's a sad that's right. statement, isn't it? Right. Yeah. If you have magazines, you must that's be right. running a convenience store. Anyway. Well, you can collect the magazines. Your partner has the massive CD collection. That I was always impressed by. Yeah, yeah. I like that we can just take this time. I mean, this is a healthcare now podcast, but it's about Medicare for all. But also, just Ben and I haven't seen each other in years. I know <laughs> it's really sad. <laughs> Whew, social contact. Let's take a twenty-minute tangent where we just talk about our lives. No, let's not. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's I get think back. we might lose. We might. I might lose my reputation as well as everyone listening to this podcast. Sure. <laughs> 
So the last, so the last thing I wanted to touch on really was um, just as like an example of how dangerous the drug advertising is at its very worst. Look no further than the opioid epidemic. You know, the opioid epidemic, which kills you know tens of thousands of people, is you know it's entirely prescription drugs, and it's basically a public health crisis that was manufactured and created by the pharmaceutical industry. You know, they they made these uh, opioid drugs. They were used fairly rarely for very severe chronic pain issues and tried to market them as, you know, uh, as things that people can just use for sort of day-to-day pain. They said that you know, they ran a public advertising uh, campaign saying that pain is underutilized. And then they had all the shady shit to incentivize physicians to prescribe and to overprescribe uh, drugs. So they're working both those angles. And the thing that really st- stuck out to me was that some of the drug companies that were most at fault for the opioid epidemic are exactly the same ones who just made the vaccines, um, which is kind of an awkward truth of how our, our healthcare system works. Well, I mean, one of the ones that everyone focus on, which is Purdue, Purdue Pharma, which is like the Oxycontin company, they they filed bank, bankruptcy. They went under, um, <laughs> everyone's trying to get a piece of their remaining cash to like help all the people who are affected by that crisis. But I didn't realize that um, there are these massive lawsuits that are happening right now that Pfizer and uh, Johnson & Johnson are in the middle of all these settlements. They're being sued by basically every state in the country and many cities and many counties. There was just like in the last couple of weeks, an announcement of a national settlement where they were going to give up billions of dollars in a settlement, including you know all these drug makers including Pfizer, including Johnson Johnson. But many states are just, are saying, we're not going to take this national settlement. We want more and we're going to pursue our own individual lawsuits. So this is all happening right now. And it's all kind of hitting the news at the same time that their vaccine shit is hitting the news. So I have a feeling it's providing a little cover for their wrongdoing. <laughs> but this is so so neither Pfizer or Johnson Johnson, they both had opi- opioid products, but they weren't like the really, really big ones like Oxycontin and Oxycodone. But Johnson & Johnson, I found out, was manufacturing more than 50% of all of the opioid drugs that were imported into the country. And then they were just bought by Purdue and all the ones that we sort of know as the, the villains now, like the bad guys. There's this whole wild story. There's a, a write-up in the Washington Post about how Johnson & Johnson, basically, they created this super poppy (laughs) opiates made from poppies, just like opium was back in the day. But it used to be not very commercially viable to to make opioids and to sell them commercially until they made this like super, super poppy that they were growing in Australia. So they had to invent that. And then they also had to lobby to change the importation rules to allow them to import drugs, uh, opiates. And they did all that shit. And that kind of drove this massive opioid epidemic in the United States. So I have the Johnson Johnson vaccine. I feel a little guilty right now. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't feel guilty then. (laughs) Well, I also tested positive two months after getting the vaccine. So (laughs) fuck you people. I mean, I I was asymptomatic. So it was vaccine hesitancy here. No, that's true. Throughout all of this. You know, drugs are great. I think that, like, that's something that we should definitely say. And, like, <laughs> like, well, but drug, drugs are terrific. I'm going to quote that out of context to promote the, the podcast. <laughs> Eli Lilly, right? Who, who, like, you know, made this shitty ad that I'm ranting about. They mm. also made Prozac, which is something that I take every mm. day, right? And mm. so, you know, I believe in drugs, and, and none of a, you know, that's not what we're saying, right? We're talking about these drug yeah. companies. And the fact is that these drug companies are always the middleman, right? 95% 
over 95% usually of any drug, the money that goes into any drug becoming public actually comes from public money, comes from federal tax dollars, comes from universities mm -hmm. that get tax breaks, right? And so we are funding these. Moderna and Pfizer are not the heroes here. It's us, right? We paid for that vaccine. And now Moderna and Pfizer are going to go and make a shit ton of money out of it. And Johnson & Johnson is going to be able to take cover for being opioid peddlers. Yeah, I, it's a good point. And I uh, I didn't want to go over the top in my Johnson Johnson hatred. Everyone, everyone should get vaccinated. And I think this is, it's also interesting to, or important to talk about the difference between marketing or advertising a vaccine and advertising things like opiates or, you know, depression medications. I mean, the vaccine is appropriate for almost everyone, unless you have some, you know, underlying medical condition that makes it bad for you to take the drug. Everyone should get the vaccine. It's appropriate for everyone. And so it's hard to get all worked up about a massive advertising campaign to re recruit people to take the vaccine. <laughs> and in fact, uh, we should be doing that publicly. I know a lot of states are doing public advertising, uh, massive public ad campaigns. So as a federal government, if the drug companies want to do it too, I'm, I'm not upset about that. But that's not how most drugs work, right? Most drugs are only needed by a cer certain subset of people. Yeah. Um, most drugs, there are alternatives that could actually be more effective or could have fewer side effects. And the drug companies don't give a shit about that. They want you to take their drug, whether it's worse for you, whether you don't really need it or not. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. And that's where drug advertising, which is allowed and barely regulated in the United States, is so uh, sort of dangerous and deadly. Yes, insidious. So I think we're going to wrap this up. You know, the, the last things I'll say about this opioid litigation, which I, ho I hope people are sort of keeping an eye on and, and following the news about. This all started, uh, apparently, the, the state of Oklahoma sued Johnson & Johnson, and they got a $500 million settlement for their role in the opioid crisis. And that followed a bunch of other states. So just, let's see, it was just this past year that I think New York also... Yeah, so there's a the, the state of New York got a big settlement against Johnson and Johnson, and then there was just recently, a couple of weeks ago, the news of this national settlement, which states and counties and cities can join or they can leave and sort of pursue their own litigation. But these folks are so dirty. The story of how this opioid epidemic went down is crazy, and advertising to patients is only kind of one piece of it. There's also they they did all sorts of other stuff to create this crisis. But we really should not have advertising of drugs in our healthcare system. It's you know we talk about how our healthcare system is so expensive. It costs about twice as much for our healthcare system as any other country in the world, and this is a big piece of it, right? Our drug spending. Part of it is overuse of drugs that people don't really need, or using more expensive drugs when a cheaper drug would work just as well for you. Yeah. But Jillian, thank you for so much for for joining the podcast, stepping in. Stephanie is away on vacation in locations unknown. Yes. Have fun, Stephanie, on vacation. And much love and solidarity to all the folks in uh, New Orleans and the surrounding areas right now who are getting pounded by the hurricane. Yeah, we're really thinking, everyone. I just I was traveling through the South recently, and we got hit like by three hurricanes, but none of them were as bad as, as Ida, which is hitting New Orleans right now, which like on the anniversary of Katrina yeah. is just insane. So we'll be thinking of all our, our activists and everyone else in, in New Orleans. I want to end by thanking our podcast team. Um, our podcast manager is Sarah Sang. Our writer for this episode was Lindsay Beige and Jerry Katz wrote the show notes and our audio editor was Sandra Felicia. So thank you so much to our podcast team. All right. Thanks so much, Julian. Thank you, ben. We'll see you all later. Bye-bye. Right.